Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Ian Drake, and this is New Books in Law podcast. I'm joined today by Timothy S. Hubner. He is the Irma O. Sternberg Professor of History at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. His previous books include The Southern Judicial Tradition, State Judges and Sectional Distinctiveness, 1790 to 1890, and The Tawny Court, Justices, Rulings, and Legacy. Today, we're going to be discussing his latest book, book entitled Liberty and Union, The Civil War Era and American Constitutionalism. It's published by University Press of Kansas. And welcome, Tim Humner, to New Books in Law podcast. Thank you, Ian. Why did you decide to write this book? There have been a lot of books, of course, about the Civil War. It's aside from the American Revolution. Everybody and their dog writes something about the Civil War. So what is it that uh, inspired you to write such a uh, sprawling uh, one-volume history of the war and its constitutional aspects? Well, it's a good question, and anyone who sets out to write a big book on the Civil War, I think, ought to be able to justify it, as you say, because there are so many books about the war. And uh, the word is that there are 16,000 books on Abraham Lincoln alone, so certainly I should be able to explain why this, this book and how it's different. I set out to write a big book about the war, as you say, one that looks at the big question of what changed. And I think that the only way to do that is to look at the antebellum era and carry it all the way through the period of Reconstruction. So I do cover a lot of ground. The book is very big and ambitious. It's about 450 pages of uh, text. Um, But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring together the fields of Civil War history and constitutional history and the field of African American history. I'm trying to put scholars in dialogue who necessarily uh, aren't always in dialogue with each other. And uh, the way that I do that is through the theme of constitutionalism, which is the thread that really runs uh, throughout the book from the end of Almera through Reconstruction. Okay, so explain what you mean by the word constitutionalism for um, for our listeners in terms of uh, What's the concept mean, and and are there multiple definitions of it? Well, sure. I would think that there are many definitions of it. Uh, The way that I use that term in this book is by thinking about how 19th century Americans looked at politics through the lens of the founding. That is, they were very interested in the legacy of the founders, meaning the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution both. So I think about those, those two founding documents and the sort of constitutional values and founding area uh, you know, principles that uh, wove themselves really uh, throughout 19th century politics. And I argue that there was such a thing as a culture of constitutionalism in the mid-19th century. Uh, now, this might be a foreign concept now because I would argue that now in the early 21st century, we don't have a culture of constitutionalism. If you pick up the newspaper or if you listen to political speeches, you don't hear much about the U.S. Constitution. But in the middle of the 19th century, it was a very different time. It was a very different place. 
They passed, as they say, as a foreign country. And in the middle of the 19th century, uh, those who are uh, holding uh, positions of power and those who are not are frequently making reference to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And so I argue that in the middle of the 19th century, Americans felt that they had um, a sort of constitutional in inheritance that they had to take care of and that they framed everything in the context of the founding. If we think about it, James Madison, the last living founder, dies in 1836. Well, 1836 is at a point where Abraham Lincoln, Jefferson Davis, and all the other major characters of the Civil War period are well into their lives. They're in their late 20s. They are starting to, uh, you know, soon, of course, they will be national figures. Um, so they really had a very deep sense that they owed something to the founding generation. And so this is a culture that you're describing, which is not merely uh, prevalent among the um, elite of uh, American society, both north and south, but really uh, is filtered throughout society, even for those who may not even be literate. Um, and so you're, this is really a popular constitutional culture, right? The popular culture of a type. It is. You know, there have been many scholars who have written about popular constitutionalism, and I and I value what they've done, but I take issue with them in the sense that I think much of what has been written in the field of popular, of popular constitutionalism is aimed at making an argument that the people themselves ought to challenge the dominance of the courts, for example. And I don't think that's what popular constitutionalism means in the 19th century, and that's why I, I try to stay away from the term and try to focus on, once again, this notion of a constitutional culture, uh, because I think it's so woven into the fabric of what people are thinking and how they're arguing over issues that they cannot escape it, and it is present in in newspaper articles, in letters, in diaries, and if you look at the Civil War and if you look at the letters and diaries of soldiers, um, uh, there are frequent references to the Constitution and the Declaration. Uh, if you look at uh, African-American activists, which is a significant part of what I'm looking at in the book, there are constant references to the Constitution and to the founding, and especially to the um, Declaration. So. You know, I'm arguing that there was something called black constitutionalism and that African-Americans had their own understanding of the founding. Uh, so I really do think that this is woven uh, into the fabric of Americans and American political discourse in the middle of the 19th century. Okay, so in terms of uh, how these different sectors or demographic groups within the society understood the Constitution, what then is uh, – the, as you've identified it, the black constitutionalist uh, view. Um, and is it monolithic? That's a good question uh, about whether it's monolithic. I, I mean, um, uh, to the extent that there's African-American constitutionalism, I, I am focusing on um, African-Americans in the antebellum north really starting in the late 18th century. And I start really with Absalom Jones, who's a uh, who is a free black man, is the first uh, black Episcopal priest, uh, and is a, a leader in the free black um, community in Philadelphia. Um, uh, 
you know, so it's a way of thinking about the founding that emphasizes really three things. It emphasizes the claim by Jefferson and the declaration that all men are created equal. It emphasizes the absence of the word slavery from the text of the U.S. Constitution, which was not lost on African Americans like Absalom Jones and others. And it emphasizes finally the notion, as they would have put it in the 19th century, of the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. And so these uh, you know, notions are all tied up with each other, but they are basically that rights come from God and that rights come from the notion by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence that all are equal and share equally or ought to share equally in this heritage of liberty. And so that's an argument being made by Absalom Jones in the 1790s. It's picked up on, uh, you know, uh, by others. Uh, James Horton, who's also a free African-American leader in Philadelphia, but also David Walker, of course, most famously Frederick Douglass. And I argue that really this is manifest, uh, uh, particularly starting in 1830, when you have a movement starting in the North that will spread and will be a significant part of uh, political culture, I argue, although it's on the margins, ultimately it will move into the mainstream. And that's the black um, convention movement. And this is, uh, and uh, what African Americans are doing when they're organizing is the, the, the substance of their constitutional views is, as I've outlined, but equally significant is this practice, it's this process of gathering in this way um, debating ideas, turning them into resolutions, voting on those resolutions, and then announcing them to the public, uh, publishing them. And we see this starting in, uh, in Philadelphia in 1830, but we see it um, uh, really uh, throughout the antebellum period, and most uh, significantly during wartime, we see it in the Syracuse um, Convention of 1864. So, so that's one of the, the threads that I try to run really throughout the book, is this notion that constitutionalism is broadly shared, and it's shared by African Americans, African American activists. It's uh, less apparent among those who were held as slaves, although I argue really that the the way uh, in which black protest and activism and emancipation uh, comes about has a constitutional element to it in that there's a movement from plantations to federal military lines and ultimately in some places where you have black soldiers like Fort Pickering here in Memphis, you also have resolutions issued during wartime by African-Americans who are uh, explaining what they're fighting for and what they're, what they're willing to die for. Um, so, so it's that notion of deeply held principles uh, that I think are a significant part of the Civil War period. And the convention um, movement or um, the phenomenon of uh, conventions, you're talking, of course, of, uh, you're speaking about free blacks up in the north, and um, I, was right. struck, I was struck by... The, the fact that these are um, they are organized gatherings. Do we have any sense of how many people attended these at all? I mean, are these conventions of about 20 people, or are they in the hundreds at all, or do we have any knowledge of how many people are attending? 
Right. So they varied, um, but um, typically they would be, well, for example, the Syracuse um, Convention in 1864 had 144 delegates. And, and um, uh, uh, many of these gatherings are smaller uh, than that, but the common thread is that really these are uh, black leaders in the North. They are free blacks. They are articulating this notion of black um, constitutionalism, and there's a sense really of, of belonging and uh, um, uh, aspiration there. It's these two concepts, I think, that are in, that work with each other. One is this sense that we really belong to America, and we want to claim all that that ought to be ours as not only residents, but citizens of this country. And really, there's an argument here for citizenship. If you look at these uh, conventions, really from the 1830s on, what they're doing is they're building an argument, making an argument that they belong to America. At the same time that they're trying to aspire to America being something that it's not yet. And so it's the sense of aspiration in wanting to live up to the founding ideals of Thomas Jefferson that's woven into this idea also that we're here, this is the land of our fathers. I mean, all of that language is evident, especially uh, right after the war when you have a series of these meetings in 1865 at the very same time that these governments formed by Andrew Johnson are, are organizing. You have these meetings of African Americans all over the South. And uh, many of them are uh, populated by uh, 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 not necessarily those who had been free prior to the war, but those who have just come out of slavery, some of whom have, who have just fought. And they're saying, here we were born, here we've been willing to give our lives. And so there's that, 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 uh, that sense of them staking a claim to being part of, uh, of uh, the United States and its heritage of, of uh, liberty. I was struck by the uh, the antebellum uh, efforts and the articulation of constitutional principles. In other words, before we get to the Civil War itself, where uh, sure. blacks are willing to make sacrifices in the war effort itself, um, it is striking to me, and, and I want to make sure um, that I'm clearly, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but rather I'm trying to interpret your, your argument about um, the character of this black constitutionalism, because it seems to me that what you're strongly implying uh, is that it, the reverence or the use of constitutional concepts or, and also concepts from the Declaration are more than solely a device or tool to leverage for freedom. They are in and of themselves an aspirational goal toward which uh, African Americans see themselves as working in a nation that they want to inhabit and uh, alongside their fellow white humans. And so uh, this is, it seems to me, more than merely a device to obtain freedom. It's more than tactical. It's, it's conceptual and aspirational. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. It is uh, aspirational. It is principled. It is uh, sincere. You know, um, James McPherson made the point many years ago when he was writing about soldiers and their uh, beliefs and why they fought for the Civil War. 
that there's kind of a disconnect, you know, that uh, when we read some of these letters and diaries written by Civil War, uh, you know, Civil War soldiers, there's this enormous sense of love of country and patriotism and constitutionalism. And all of that is there. And he said, look, if, if you know, we don't understand that because that doesn't resonate with us, that's our problem and not theirs. And it just points out the fact that this is a different time and it's a different culture. And so, yes, I am arguing that African-Americans really believed in these ideas that they're putting forth. Now, that's not to say that they didn't also understand that it was a very effective strategy. Um, sure. But I don't, you know. But I don't think those things are in conflict with each other. I think it can be a very uh, effective strategy in a way that burning the U.S. Constitution, for example, is not a very good strategy. Um, uh, at the same time that they really, really believe in it. And, and you know, uh, I'm most struck by the, the statement by Frederick Douglass after Dred Scott. Uh, I used it as the epigraph of the book. And basically what uh, Frederick Douglass says in the aftermath, I mean, at the sort of low point, uh, one would argue, of African-American rights in the 19th century, uh, Douglass says, look, I have faith in the Declaration and the Constitution that this is a, a platform that's strong enough from which we can build this movement for justice in this country. And I was so struck by that, and I actually stumbled onto that well into the writing of the book and of the research, and it just seemed to hit me and and really capture what I was thinking about when it came to black constitutionalism. Right, and, um, and so and Douglas is, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, some of it sounds so optimistic, we can hardly even 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 believe it, but... but uh, but again, mostly I think we should take people at their word in the 19th century when they said these things. Oh, well, people in the past, they were so naive, weren't they? <laughs> we, know, we know so much now. That's right. Um, so Douglas, of course, Frederick Douglass is, is not an aberration. Rather, he is representative in many ways of constitutional thought among African-Americans. Yes, I am arguing that. And so, so to, to go back to your previous question, you know, obviously there are, there are disparate voices and there will be those in the 19th century, um, especially after the war, you know, who have a, a more negative view and they grow cynical. And certainly this is the case with Henry McNeil Turner, who appears in the book at various points and is mostly on the same page with Douglas, seems to be uh, a strong believer in black constitutionalism, but after the civil rights cases of 1883, he's he's very upset and shocked. Uh, he's really surprised at the outcome, and he's and if you sort of look at his words, he's almost ready to give up on the country. You know, so there is uh, that element of it. Certainly, there's the 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 strain of thought that comes up in the antebellum era. And is is a thread throughout African American history in the 19th century, which is that we have no home here, and that we should go back to the land of our ancestors, or that we should go somewhere else. But that's never the the dominant strain within African American thought in the 19th century. Right, and that's a that's a good point that you make early on, um, uh, foreshadowing uh, your conclusion at the end about the relevance and importance of this Black constitutional constitutionalism concept, you, you note that 
African Americans did not after at the end of this period, and we should note that your book ends essentially in the 1880s, um, as Reconstruction right. is essentially over with, and as the Supreme Court is um, essentially upholding the Southern states' uh, legal approach to how they deal with African Americans in their in the South, and you note that even at this disappointing, um, lamentable uh, end time frame in the 1880s, African-Americans are not trying to leave the U.S. They're not seeking revenge, and they're not asking for segregation. Right. And so that, I think, uh, those facts on the ground really prove, uh, I think, support your point about this uh, conceptual, popular conception, if you will, of uh, among African-Americans about the Constitution. Um, I, I, in the South, uh, I've always been struck by... Um, uh, various accounts of slaves and how they learned about things in the broader world. It's amazing to me, especially with a population that many of whom are presum- presumably illiterate, um, although not all are, uh, certainly, but uh, it's amazing how they are not isolated on plantations, but rather there is truly a network uh, that is informal, hidden, and altogether threatening uh, for the right. white population of learning about the news uh, from the North and among uh, white society. And uh, whites are constantly surprised. They can't keep things hidden. Uh, right, exactly. And so uh, that is amazing to me. And do you have any thoughts on um, how black constitutionalism st- uh, spread uh, to the degree that we can ascertain it spread uh, in the southern black population? Right. That is that's a very good question. And, uh, you know, I thought about that and I, and I thought about it in the writing of the book. But there are several moments where you where you kind of catch glimpses of what's going on. And certainly one of them is when when Lincoln is elected president, there is this sense on the on the part of African-Americans that something has changed because they've been overhearing all sorts of interesting I'm sure, sorts of conversations in antebellum southern mansions for the last year about this fellow Lincoln, and it's all been negative. And now that he's won, that must mean, from their perspective, if their masters have been saying such horrible things about this man, he might be somebody that they should be learning something about, and he might do some things that are favorable to their interests. So so it's not really surprising, then, that uh, things start to happen after Lincoln is elected and really even before the war breaks out. And I do tell the story, as others have, have uh, made the point, especially those in the Freedmen and Southern Society Project at the University of Maryland, that uh, African Americans take early steps uh, to free themselves. And we see this at, um, at Fort Pickens and Fort, and Fort Sumter uh, before the war starts. We see it, of course, at Fortress Monroe, starting in the summer of 1861, just after the war has started. And, of course, Fortress Monroe is going to continue to be a very significant gathering point, a sort of depot for freedom for African Americans uh, for for many, many months. And uh, I use uh, quotations from the sort of captain who's in charge there in 1863 after Lincoln's issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation, where this process uh, speeds up and uh, more and more African-Americans are starting to make their way to forts like that one. So, so 
certainly uh, we see evidence of that. And then part of what I tried to do in the military chapters uh, in the middle of the book was to show that uh, where the federal army was, and especially where the federal army was successful, there would be African-Americans fleeing to the federal army in those places. And so the uh, story that I tell of the, of the military conflict in chapters four and five um, is punctuated with these various moments, whether it's in Louisiana, whether it's in Mississippi, whether it's in Virginia, uh, of African-Americans taking matters into their own hands. Um, that is, in a sense, an expression of constitutionalism. It's, uh, it, it doesn't have the content or the, or, or the sort of articulate uh, uh, expression that you see from activists who are gathering and issuing resolutions, but there is a realization here that the war means something and that people are fighting for principles and one of those principles from the perspective of African Americans held as slaves is freedom. And if freedom is going to come to me if I flee to Memphis uh, after it's occupied by Union forces in June of 1862, uh, then that's what uh, uh, that's what slaves do, and they do in very very significant numbers. Uh, you know, starting after that time, so so all that is simply to say, yeah, it's much harder to try to describe uh, black constitutionalism among the slave population, uh, but I think that there are elements of that there that, as you say, filter down through uh, politics and through how African Americans understood what was going on around them. So um, before we get to the uh, war itself, we have this um, uh, standard litany of events which must be addressed. Um, from And you begin, of course, with the Constitutional Convention. Uh, well, even before that with the Declaration. And um, it's a sprawling, uh, it, it, by, by virtue of the, the, the uh, number of events that you have to cover before you get to 1860, um, there's the seminal political events, and they punctuate, uh, we've known this since high school history, right, uh, the Missouri Compromise, um, right. the, the Mexican War, and so right. in two minutes or less, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what do you see, uh, the serious question really is, slavery is an unresolved issue, it's an unresolved problem, and moving aside from, I think, General readers, in addition to professional historians, are, I'm sure, aware of the debate about is the Constitution pro-slavery versus not. Um, And we can't perhaps put that debate to rest, but it seems to me that um, this unresolved question is constantly being dealt with by virtue of the expansion of American territory. And so what do you see, I know there's a lot to pick from, but what do you see as the really key turning point? Because it seems to me that 1820, uh, uh, the, um, the Missouri Compromise, um, really offers what for both sides, uh, anti-slavery and pro-slavery, seems to be a workable solution for a time. But what really puts that to rest? In other words, what challenge is that ultimately? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I try in the first three chapters of the book to set up the causes of the Civil War and the sectional conflict as it is taking shape really 
um, as you say, from the writing of the Constitution on by looking at the two uh, um, unresolved issues of 1787, slavery and sovereignty, the sovereignty being the relationship uh, between the national government and the uh, states, uh, federalism. And so, but I end up spending more time on the slavery question because I think that the sovereignty issue only makes sense understood through the lens of the slavery question. And I deal with slavery really in the context of what I call slaveholders' rights. And um, in this sense, what I'm arguing here in these early chapters is that Southerners came to this uh, sort of conclusion, especially by Dred Scott. And Dred Scott might be the turning point in 1857. They came to the conclusion that they, as Southern slaveholders, possessed a bundle of rights. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, uh, one of those was to hold slaves in the Southern states. Secondly, was to, to recapture fugitive slaves who escaped into, uh, into the North. And the third of those rights, which is the one that really gets them into trouble on the national political stage after the war with Mexico, is the right to take their slave property into new federal territories in the West. And uh, that's the issue that really heats up the whole sectional political uh, uh, sort of debate. And arguably there's pressure on the Supreme Court, and I'm not saying this, other people have uh, said this based in the, in the sources, many political leaders and members of the Supreme Court thought that they ought to weigh in on this question of the extension of slavery in the West. And so Roger Tawney and his colleagues in 1857 take a relatively unknown uh, sort of case and turn it into um, a sort of vehicle for trying to resolve the deepest and most fundamental questions of the age in the late 1850s, which, once again, what were the rights of slaveholders under the U.S. US Constitution? And Tawney, um, who is an extremist in this case by this time in his life, and I've written elsewhere that as a young man he was uh, mildly or moderately anti-slavery, but by the end of the 1850s he's very partisan, very much a Democrat, very much takes the side of his political party, and his political party really, really believes in slaveholders' rights, and so does Tawney. And so what that means is that Tawney gives the most extreme statement that he can, which is that he tries to settle this question of slavery and the founding by saying that the Constitution uh, guarantees slaveholders' rights, um, and uh, when he does that, he eliminates the possibility for another compromise, going back to your question about 1820 and what that turning point is. So I think that when Tawney constitutionalizes all of this and crystallizes for white Southerners what they've been thinking for years anyway, which is now this is a constitutional right to old slaves, uh, not just in the South, not simply to reclaim them in the North, but now to take them into, uh, into the West and in Abraham Lincoln's mind, as he reads this, to take them into the North, right? And so, so by 1857, then, there's this constitutionalization and this, and this turning of the slavery question into a question of, uh, of uh, constitutional rights. And I think that, that's the turning point in the sense that 
from that point on, it's going to be very difficult for any sectional compromise to take shape. Okay, so you have these uh, formal institutions in the form of the court um, and uh, Congress itself. But also there's, as we've discussed in the context of uh, the African-American population, but um, among the white population as well, both North and South, there is this popular debate about slavery, uh, the morality of it. And um, I recall Lincoln, he, he meets uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe at some point, and he tells her, so you're the woman who wrote the book that started all this or, or something to that effect. And um, so there is this popular debate uh, that's beyond a constitutional debate. It's a, 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 a moral debate. And, um, and so, uh, do you see constitutional concepts impacting the moral debate or uh, are they, are they separate? Uh, people, in other words, uh, today you could debate abortion and there's the morality issue regarding abortion, but then there's the constitutional question of abortion, and in many ways you can analyze them separately um, as constitutional concepts, the legitimacy of it, etc., um, independent of the moral question. Uh, was that the way it was treated in the 1840s and 50s, or is it uh, mixed in, essentially? Yeah, uh, this is one of the issues that I struggled with as I was writing those early chapters of the book, because there is this moral sort of debate going on, and we know that there are abolitionists really from, you know, from the 1830s on, there is this this sort of very morally focused abolitionist movement led by Garrison and others, um, and uh, figuring out exactly the relationship between that that whole moral debate and the constitutional debate is complicated. Um, I think that if this is a moral question for anyone, it's a moral question for African Americans, even in a way that it's not for Garrison. Uh, because what you see, as I said, from the start, from African Americans, is not only a sort of challenging of the institution of slavery, but even a challenging of the notion of racism, of, right, of white uh, supremacy. And so all those things are tied up for African Americans in a way that they are not quite tied up in the same way even for the abolitionists. So, so the abolitionists are, are, are happy to question the morality of slavery. They are less likely to talk about what happens after slavery, whether African Americans can be citizens, whether they belong, whether they have full rights, whether they would have the right to vote. And abolitionists are all over the board on those questions, and mostly they don't want to talk about them. Mostly they want to focus on the slavery issue and how slavery is uh, morally wrong. So, so part of, of what I'm getting at with black constitutionalism, and I don't say this um, explicitly in the book, but uh, they're making a moral argument about human dignity and personhood that um, – ultimately comes to the center of the national political debate during and after the war, but is not really at the heart of the constitutional debate, uh, even for people like Abraham Lincoln, who, who in the uh, you know debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858, always has to say to Douglas, now, I'm not saying that black people are equal to white people, or I'm not saying that 
blacks and whites ought to be able to intermarry. Or I'm not even saying that blacks ought to be citizens in the state of Illinois. And we sometimes uh, lose sight of that, that on the question of citizenship, Lincoln and Douglas were on the same page. So, so, so it, is, it is constitutional uh, more than it is moral um, for Lincoln. Now, that is not to say that Lincoln isn't morally opposed um, to slavery. Uh, he is. But the question of what happens after you end slavery is not one that Lincoln ever really addresses till he has to confront it. And even then, we don't know fully how he would have answered that because, of course, he ended up dying in 1865. And so um, we move in. It's a good segue from Lincoln into the war itself. You, as you noted earlier, have two chapters that in many ways, um, they, these are military history chapters, essentially, right? Uh there are accounts of battles, their tactics even. Um, this is, I mean, in other words, the, the military conflict is not hovering in the background, but rather it's brought to the forefront of your account. It's, uh, it, this is a uh, truncated, obviously, by virtue of the length that you've got to work with, but out of 450-some-odd pages, you spend about 70 to 80 pages on uh, the military conflict from day one to the end. And, and so why was that important right. in a constitutional history? Right. You know, I really believe, like Gary, like Gary Gallagher and others, that you cannot write a book about the history of the American Civil War without dealing with the fact that there's actually a war going on. So, I, 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 you know, so I don't think it's possible to just ignore that and focus on politics and, and uh, in, sort of, in sort of constitutionalism. So... So I think those things are woven together in the sense that I can make references to what's happening on the battlefield at the time of the, of the Emancipation Proclamation or at the time of um, other events that are happening in politics when Jefferson Davis, for example, uh, decides that he needs to use black soldiers, you know, uh, those things are shaped by what's going on on the battlefield. And, and, and so I think that this is the challenge for anyone who's trying to write this is how do you express that? How do you structure that when you're writing a book? And some people choose to integrate all that stuff together. And I do that to the extent that I can. But what I really tried to do here in this part of the book was to, was to model this um, – on um, on a a um, a, um, uh, a previous study, uh, American Iliad by Charles Rowland, uh, who who has a couple of military chapters, and then he deals in three or four other chapters with other things going on at the same time. Uh, I thought that was a good model in that I have two chapters that focus very specifically on military events. But they also try to accomplish two other purposes other than simply outlining what's going on uh, in the war. One is to show that military leaders had political and constitutional principles. So really woven, um, <clears throat> so really woven uh, throughout those chapters are the political and constitutional values of Robert E. Lee and George McClellan and Stonewall Jackson and, uh, William, Rose and William Rosecrans. And others showing that uh, these aren't just military professionals carrying out duty uh, that they feel like they need to carry out, you know, because they are 
uh, are uh, generals. Uh, these are, are, are men who have deeply held beliefs. And that goes back to the idea that I argue in the preface that the Civil War is a war of a principle, as I put it, fought on constitutional terrain. And so part of what I'm trying to show is that these military leaders had their own views of the U.S. Constitution. And the second thing that I'm trying to do in those chapters, in addition to outlining um, how things played out on the battlefield, is to show how, how this freedom movement on the part of African Americans um, comes about at these various points as federal victories on the battlefield uh, take place. And then finally, I, I mean, as I've said, uh, in a, a larger sense, what I'm trying to do is to explain then in subsequent chapters, in the chapter on, on Lincoln and Northern politics and government, or the chapter on Davis and what's going on in the South, I can make reference to these battles and the reader knows what I'm talking about and can see how those things can be linked. So that's what I'm trying to do. And I, I mean, again, it, you know, it's uh, there's this great sort of divide uh, between those who write Civil War history, who tend to focus on battles, and those who write about constitutional history or African-American history who don't want to focus on battles. And oftentimes those of us who write about constitutional or, or, or political history will almost sort of scoff at those who write about battles. Um, but again, I am honestly trying to bring these people in these fields uh, together in the sense that I'm trying to do all of that. Now, maybe that makes the book ambitious, and probably it is ambitious, uh, but I think that one can't tell one story without telling the other story. Okay, and uh, I, that's a good point you make, which is that um, often there's this, <clears throat> pardon me, there's this uh, divide where the political constitutional historians in some ways just ignore uh, the military as if they're uh, not really connected. But right. um, you do uh, at some points expressly uh, and um, sometimes implicitly you note uh, not just the major figures of the war, but I was, um, for example, I was impressed uh, with the implication that this guy, uh, I can't remember his rank, uh, Don Carlos Buell, um, mm -hmm. and his uh, refusal to do Lincoln's bidding um, in regard to pursuing a um, vanquished uh, foe uh, is in some ways perhaps uh, a reflection of his what we could call constitutional or political view of the purposes of this conflict. And so it seems to me that that's where the, um, you know, what you're implying here as you've just uh, articulated is the intersection between military conflict with political reality or political possibilities is when you as a commander have to decide what you're going to do on the battlefield. When do, what is the purpose of this war um, and how does it, quote unquote, end once you are seemingly victorious? Do you pursue them and rout them uh, as Lincoln, of course, wanted and was repeatedly frustrated with people not doing, um, or do you essentially take what in some ways might have been seen, I guess, at the time as a Lincolnian view, uh, wherein you say, okay, we've routed you, but now we're not going to um, press uh, our uh, victory upon you. You can go back home and, 
And of course, that cost them. That cost the North later when they released their prisoners because these guys go right back into it. Um, right. And so uh, it, it seems to me that you're implying here that the way we manage war is a reflection. It's truly a reflection of the Clausewitzian view that this is politics. You know, this is part of politics. Right. And uh, Buell and McClellan are these two, as I, as, I, as I sort of call them in the book, these two dithering Democratic generals that uh, Lincoln is never really satisfied with because they don't really share his view of the war. They don't um, share his view of emancipation. They don't really believe that the war is being fought for anything other than trying to restore the Union. Um, and so uh, that's the view of most Northerners in 1861, but by 1863, Lincoln has got a different agenda here. And he's emancipating slaves, and, and uh, African Americans are, are flocking to, to federal military lines, and, and so people like uh, McClellan and Buell are, are not a part of the plan by that time. And so it's not really surprising then that he would turn to people like Grant and Sherman Although Sherman's interesting, but and maybe we can talk about him. But um, you know, Grant uh, comes to accept Lincoln's view that the only way to win the war and really defeat the South and the rebellion, as they called it, uh, was to end the cause of the rebellion, and that was slavery. And so, um, so really, uh, Grant says, you know, I was never an abolitionist, but I'm coming around to the idea that we really need to wipe out slavery. And then I argue in the end of the book that uh, Grant is really a very significant uh, proponent for African-American rights after the war during his presidency. And in that sense, I, I take a somewhat more positive view of Grant than other scholars. Um, Sherman is interesting because he really believes in hard war. And he really believes that you have to go after the enemy, which is the same view Grant has. But he's, um, but 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 he does not share Grant's uh, view of of African Americans' uh, rights. He does think that slavery needs to end. He kind of comes around to that view uh, because he believes that Southerners have forfeited their rights and their rights as uh, property holders under the U.S. Constitution. Once the once they have claimed to have left the Union, they can no longer. Um, you know, claim that those rights need to be protected by the federal government. So Sherman um, comes around, um, you know, to the argument that slavery needs to end, but he's, but he doesn't uh, really have much faith in African Americans as soldiers, and he's much less willing to to kind of give ground when it comes to this question of rights. Now we've just been discussing uh, the northern end of this, but um, the, you devote uh, a good portion of your analysis to. Uh, constitutionalism from the Southern perspective, the Confederate perspective, because they've got their own constitution that they um, ratify. Um, and uh, there is, of course, uh, there's a great deal to touch upon here. And in our time remaining, what I'd, um, in regard to the South, can you comment on um, the problems, political constitutional problems beyond slavery? Uh, in other words, slavery is the reason for the South's exist, uh, the Confederacy's existence, of course. But what are the governance problems that are created? Um, it seems to me that Jefferson Davis has a headache from the get-go uh, for managing a war 
under this, what is in many ways a cut-and-paste job from the U.S. Constitution with the major exceptions of how they handle slavery. So can you comment upon, I know it's a, a, I'm setting you up for, you know, I'm trying to point you toward a particular direction here, but uh, feel free to respond to this as you wish. But, you know, what, what are these big problems that Davis and the other uh, leaders have in the South? Sure. So uh, Davis, everybody in the South thought Davis was a far superior leader to Abraham Lincoln when they uh, chose Davis. He he was a statesman. He had been a senator. He had been secretary of war. He had fought in Mexico. You know, he knew about military strategy. He he would be effective in dealing with other countries and helping them to to sort of. Um, to win foreign support. So you know, everybody was optimistic at the time when Davis is sworn in, and there really is this sense in the South that he's going to lead them on to victory. Um, well, it was not to be. Uh, you know, there were so many challenges and so many problems, and you point out the fact that one of them is that they have basically taken the entire U.S. Constitution. They have made a few changes on the question of slavery. They have, they have written slaveholders' rights specifically into the text. But at the same time, they've also affirmed the sovereignty of each state in the preamble, and which harkens back to the Articles of Confederation. And, and, they, um, and they are sort of guided still by this um, code of honor, which I introduced early in the, in the book. Um, and that is is present really uh, throughout. So so you have the lack of a two-party structure where Davis would have his natural allies within his own party. You have this single party, which uh, ultimately, even though you would think would lead to more unity, ends up leading to chaos because the opposition comes from all different sides, all different fronts. So you have wealthy planners who don't want to be taxed. Um, uh, you have... Uh, um, uh, you have those who are you know, champions of states of, of state power, like Joseph Brown, who don't want federal soldiers from Georgia to have to fight in a larger southern army. Uh, you have arguments about uh, habeas corpus and individual rights. Then you have the the sort of southern unionists, who, from the Confederate point of view, are you know dissenters who have to be uh, dealt with in in some way. Um, so there's all this factionalism and this fracturing that's taking place almost from the start. Um, uh, the, the Confederacy does win a series of military victories, especially in the first two years in the Eastern Theater. And arguably uh, that kind of sets the tone for sort of Confederate nationalism because it's almost as if the entire Confederate nation is wrapped up in Robert E. Lee's army. And so long as Lee's army survives, then the Confederacy survives. And that's basically an argument that others have made. I'm thinking of Gary Gallagher's book about the Army of Northern uh, Virginia that essentially makes this point that they are the symbol, really. And so that means that um, if that is the symbol, uh, um, fine, but you still have to have a sort of governing structure that can work. And one of the problems that they had is they had written into their constitution this idea that you couldn't um, you couldn't uh, tax in order to build roads and bridges and the things you need. Well, I mean, those are the things that you need if you're going to unify a nation and uh, win a war. So, 
So the antebellum South's political opposition to internal Im, Im, improvements ends up uh, affecting how they're able to wage the war. Now, for part of the war, they overlooked that, and Davis is able to get around that, but that still represents a sort of real opposition to using centralized authority um, in a, a such a way as to interfere with state power. So this is a one-party and state. So that's, you know, it's a one-party state. Right, right. And, and so those are issues really uh, throughout. And so by the end of the war, um, by 1864, I mean, Davis is finally losing in the East. Uh, Lee is on the run by the spring of 1864. And uh, even Lee is now saying to Davis, what we really need to do is we need to enlist African-American soldiers. We need to have slaves fight because the enemy has been able to use this population um, in opposition to us, and we don't we don't have enough men, and we've got to do something. And uh, so that, of course, creates a whole other set of problems because then you've got all of those in the deep south who really, from the start, thought that they were fighting to try to protect and preserve the institution of slavery. Now you have the possibility of some form of freedom uh, for those who are willing to fight for the south, and, and of course that that. You know, doesn't ever actually come into being because it is too late. But that that whole policy debate in early 1865 shows the extent of the chaos within the Confederacy by that time. Now, after the war, um, we have the Reconstruction period, wherein we have military occupation of portions of the South, and there's this ongoing question about how the Union is going to be reintegrated, or I should say the Confederate states are going to be uh, readmitted and reintegrated into the Union. Um, ever since the beginning of the war, there have been the debate about how the South should be legally treated. In other words, what's the status of the South? Are they, the Lincoln view is that they're essentially still part of the Union, but they are not in their proper relationship to the union um they are recalcitrant they are rebellious but they're not a separate state but then again um it seems to me that they kind of pick and choose um their theory in order to fit some of their um actual military needs which is they they will treat them as a separate nation state um if it uh meets in accord with their uh objectives on the battlefield is 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 that in other words is is this consistent constitutional approach throughout the war period or is it kind of a make it up as you go along approach and maybe that's too uh pat and flippant a description but um, it seems uh, i've tried to articulate you know the these seemingly inconsistent approaches uh, what do you think about that i think you're right i think they're mostly making it up as they go along it's very hard to be um consistent on this question, and it's a question that uh, doesn't disappear, whether the South had legally actually left the Union, or whether they need to be treated under the laws of war as, as an enemy, um, as any other warring, foreign warring power. And so this is a constitutional needle that needs to be threaded at many moments. And one of those is the prize cases in 1863 when the U.S. Supreme Court has to, has to rule on whether Lincoln's blockade of the 
Confederacy is constitutional. And uh, thankfully for Lincoln, by that time, this is 1863, he's been able to add some justices to the court who are sympathetic to union policy. And what you see uh, in the prize cases in 1863 is that the court basically gives Lincoln exactly what he needs, which is that there is not a sort of legal recognition um, of uh, secession, and yet there's a recognition of the fact of uh, war, which, uh, which, which causes the court then to say that the blockade is constitutional. So, so, so uh, uh, that's sort of the first instance when this legal question of whether the South had actually left the Union um, has to be dealt with. That question is going to persist really throughout the rest of the 1860s after the war and even arguably into the 1870s. It's going to shape how the ratification of the amendments has to happen. And it's interesting um, that uh, the, uh, uh, you know, this is a uh, sort of question in the sense that the ratification of the 13th Amendment um, happens uh, in such a way that those southern states uh, are treated as full and equal members of the Union after the war in 1865. And yet, in order to achieve the ratification of the 14th Amendment, Congress feels the need to establish the Military Reconstruction Act of 1867 to call for the occupation of the southern states in order to make sure that ratification of the 14th Amendment happens. So changing political circumstances will 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 sort of shape the rules. And so I think that is very much evidence that they're making it up as they go along now. Uh, the other side of that, though, and, and this is the, the, the sort of principled side that I think comes out in the book, is that once this black constitutional vision for not only the end of slavery, but citizenship and rights for African Americans comes to the forefront, arguably that's one of the drivers, uh, not the only driver, but one of the drivers for this fluctuating constitutional view as to what the rules ought to be. So in other words, uh, there is this sense that that whole debate over African-American rights is going to play a significant role in the aftermath of the war. And uh, Republicans who are sympathetic to this black constitutional argument, and none of them are, are, are um, uh, or I should say there's never a point where all of them are fully sympathetic to it. It's always a question of how many, at what point, are sympathetic to the claims of African Americans as they're arguing for citizenship and full rights. But that is part of the moral uh, imperative, going back to your uh, previous sort of question, um, that lies at the heart of the constitutional situation after the war, um, which in many ways is going to have an effect on this fluctuating uh, sort of answer to the question of whether the South has actually left the Union. In other words, uh, that's, the, uh, that's the underlying principle, even if they're not necessarily being principled on the question of whether the South had ever actually left. And uh, you mentioned rights. Um seems to me, uh, as we're winding up here, I want to address this concept of rights in the post-war period because you note that there's really this tripartite conception of rights. That is, 
Um, there are things that are thought of by the actors at the time. Today we call everything civil rights. Anything uh, is right. a civil right. And that's kind of an amorphous right. term in the 19th century because – or uh, that framework doesn't seem to work very well in the 19th century. They divide it into uh, political rights, civil rights, and loosely, I guess, social rights. And so can you briefly explain right. this conceptual sure. difference and – it, it seems to me that it's more than just an abstraction because, uh, for example, it seems to perhaps play a role in the famous Slaughterhouse case uh, from 1873 with the what does the privileges sure. and immunities clause really mean. And um, it seems right. to me that this is really palpable and that the kind of political <clears throat> conceptual division or distinction that we just don't have today. Right, yeah, and this is a big part of what I'm doing in the end of the book when it comes to Reconstruction, is I'm tracing the, the, the sorting out of these different types of rights and to what extent African Americans gained these, these different sets of rights. So civil rights are uh, the most basic rights that come with, with freedom. And uh, these are the rights that are spelled out in the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Incidentally, this is the first time that these civil rights are ever spelled out. And these are the rights to enter into contracts, to own property, to buy, sell, and lease property. Um, you know, so those sorts of things are the most fundamental. They are associated with freedom in its most basic sense, and I argue that these are the rights, ultimately, even if you go uh, into the 1880s and beyond, these are the rights that are most secure. Uh, they're not uh, written into the 13th Amendment or the 14th Amendment, per se, but uh, uh, these are the rights that um, uh, African Americans um, um, are able to hold to um, most um, consistently throughout this period. Uh, political rights were the right to vote and to serve on a jury and to hold office. These rights were far more um, contested, and many people were willing to grant black citizenship so long as black citizenship didn't mean black voting. And so you have a whole debate in Congress in 1866, 1867, 1868 that's going to continue on really to the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870 about whether voting is one of these rights, and if it's not, are we going to protect that also? Um, so voting then um, is, of course, uh, a significant right that will be guaranteed ultimately by the 15th Amendment, not only in the South, but all over the country for African Americans. Uh, that right, though, as I said, is more contested and um, is on a little bit shakier ground. Social rights, which is a term we don't use now, but it was used at the time, would be the rights of people of different races to interact freely with each other. This is what we think about when we think about uh, railroads, um, hotels, restaurants. In these public places, are people of different races able to uh, associate with uh, uh, each other? Um, and there was some talk at the time, you know, um, that... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, social equality would even um, uh, mean the sort of right to marry. Now, that was, uh, in most instances, kept out of these debates because most people thought that that was pushing things too far in the 19th century. So, 
So it sort of comes up uh, here and there, but uh, it's not part of the mainstream national debate, even over social, social rights. rights. would have been things like um, public accommodations. In other words, right, the famous absolutely. Plessy case where Homer Plessy is not allowed to uh, ride in a certain part right. of the trolley car. And, uh, that's the kind of thing that we're thinking of when we think of social rights, is the interact daily interaction between blacks and whites. Right. Right. And those are the rights that are the most controversial from the perspective of white Southerners and that that most uh, white Northerners are kind of suspect of and not really sure whether or not they are willing to go that far. So we do have the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which is going to ban, of course, racial discrimination in public uh, accommodations. But uh, within eight years, it's struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. And I argue at the end of the book that that's not really surprising in the sense that social rights were the most controversial and the least uh, secure of all of these rights. Um, so, uh, so I mean, ultimately, in the last chapter of the book, the chapter on freedom, I make a distinction between black freedom and black politics. And black freedom is basically those fundamental rights associated with freedom the right to move around, the right to enter into contracts, the right to own property, uh, the right to worship freely, uh, the right to bring a case into court. All of those things are reasonably secure throughout Reconstruction and even after Reconstruction ends. It's political rights and especially social rights that are on much shakier ground um, when it comes to the U.S. Supreme Court. uh, My last question, which is, um, it seems to me uh, that and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me you might be uh, slightly controversial at the end of your book in drawing your conclusion, which I think is what forms your title, which is that the questions that are answered by the war and Reconstruction are that, in fact, liberty is achieved. And, of course, union is achieved. And so that these two Big questions, even though they are not answered, and this is the caveat, they are not answered to the fullest extent that they are ultimately, at least the liberty question, is not answered to the fullest extent really until the 1960s. But nevertheless, it seems to me, and this perhaps may be somewhat controversial among professional historians, is you strike a somewhat optimistic note about the results of not only the war, but also Reconstruction itself. Is that going too far? No, I think that that uh, that accurately captures what I'm doing at the end of the book. Um, I think that there is a great danger for those of us who write in the field of civil war and reconstruction, and it is that that uh, we read history backwards and that we start from the present. And we who live in the in the uh, post civil rights movement era say, well, we know that there had to be a uh, civil rights movement, so then that means nothing really changed uh, after the Civil War, and I just don't think that's true. Because if you look at the words of those who lived through this period over and over again, they believe they were living through revolutionary times. And if we read history forward rather than backward, if we understand that slavery existed on North American soil for 250 years, and that it came to an end, and that it and that it really came to an end, and that black freedom was something significant. And that's the the last chapter of the book, um, is uh, freedom, the South and the North. And what I'm trying to do there is draw the contrast with the first chapter of the book, which is slavery, the South and the North. 
And I'm trying to outline what those changes actually were in the South after the war and that black freedom was meaningful. Now, that doesn't mean that African-Americans achieved everything that we would have liked or that or even that they would have hoped uh, at the time. But they truly still believe that they lived through revolutionary times and that the end of slavery constituted a real revolution. Um, now, I know that there are books that have been written with titles like slavery by, you know, another name or worse than slavery. And so, yes, there is a literature out there arguing that uh, in the late 19th century that things actually get worse than they had ever been for African-Americans. Um, but I don't want us to, to, um, to overlook the contributions of those who lived through this period. And they essentially... Uh, helped to bring about, I argue, a revolutionary change uh, in America uh, because they brought about the end of slavery. And if we uh, discount that, then we're not taking seriously the words of those who lived uh, through the uh, Civil War period. The book is Liberty and Union, the Civil War Era, and American Constitutionalism, and the author has joined us today. Our guest has been Timothy S. Hubner. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Law. Well, thank you very much. It has been a pleasure.